So it is not the level of difficulty that defines the complexity. So level of difficulty has nothing to do with whether this problem is simple or complicated or complex. It is this inability to be able to predict, inability to see what is going to come. That is what makes it. Hello, uh, this is Larry Suskind, and uh, I'm talking today uh, with my colleague and friend, uh, Shafiqul Islam. Uh, Shafiq is a professor of engineering and water diplomacy at Tufts University, where he's also the director of the water diplomacy program. Uh, in 2016, he was the recipient of the Prince Sultan bin Abdulaziz International Water Prize for Creativity. Uh, he's written more than 100 journal articles uh, that have been published and uh, four books on water diplomacy, and uh, we are very lucky to have a chance to talk with him today about his new book in the Anthem Science Diplomacy series called Complexity of Transboundary Water Conflicts which he edited jointly with uh, Inamal uh, Choudhury, a colleague of his. Uh, the subtitle of the new book is important to the conversation we're going to have. The subtitle is Enabling Conditions for Negotiating Contingent Resolution. And I'm going to ask him some questions that will help those of you listening who know about maybe water management, water policy, even water diplomacy, uh, in some detail, but we're going to dig in on some of the terms in that uh, subtitle. So let me start um, by asking uh, Shafiq to talk about what complexity means in the context of water diplomacy. Shafiq? Thank you, Larry. This is indeed an honor and a privilege to have the opportunity to share some of our ideas and thinking with you particularly as a colleague and a long-term mentor in bringing me to this whole idea of negotiation theory through water diplomacy, complexity, and transboundary water conflicts. So let me start with three broad questions. And these are probably everywhere in the media to social media, literature, and policy practice. So are we running out of water? Will water scarcity lead to war? Is water an economic good? For some, the answer to these questions may be absolute yes, and some will insist on the opposite. Yet, many will argue that the answer to each question is, it depends. Of course, it depends. But it depends on what, why, and how do we get yes and no answer for the same question? This is partly because of our search for certainty and clear-cut solution for the problems of water that we face. For simple problems where cause and effect relationships are well understood, we have more confidence in the outcomes of the action that we take, and we can predefine solutions. But what do these problems of water scarcity, security, and sustainability have in common? In a colloquial sense, 
most people would say these are complex problems. But what makes these problems complex? Many of our water problems arise, we view that from a coupling of natural and human systems. Historically, it has been commonplace to draw conceptual boundaries between natural systems and human systems. Roughly speaking, this distinction has been made between systems governed by invariant physical laws like natural systems and those involving norms and behavior for human systems. Natural systems are often taken to be describable in context-independent ways, while description of human systems are usually context-dependent. And when we think it is important that our readers are aware that such distinctions remain prevalent in professional practice today, we do not require that our readers accept the designation of natural and human systems as the appropriate classifier. Instead, we are using these terms as shorthand that allows us to distinguish between the physical laws that suggest that water will usually flow downhill. That's natural system. These social norms may dictate that water may also flow uphill when drawn towards money and power. So that's the context-dependent and independent way we will think about natural and human systems. If we do this, really, the traditional approach has been to treat these phenomena as coexistent, but largely independent. However, a growing body of literature on the coupling of natural and human systems suggests this assumption of independence may be misplaced. With increasing frequency, researchers and practitioners are identifying phenomena that defy the, this dichotomous description of natural or human systems. These phenomena also resist description by parts. They cannot merely be built up from natural or societal components. This evidence points to an irreducible and intrinsic condition that exists in coupled natural and human systems. Interactions of natural and human dynamics give rise to this complexity of the problem that we are talking about. So what does complexity mean in this usage? It's not a distinction that describes the degree of difficulty involved in solving the problem. But an intrinsic property of the complexity is that in contrast to simple and complicated system, complex systems has very different characteristics. They're ambiguous, they're non-prospective, they do not obey cause-effect relationships in a clear way, broad and often irredu irreducible uncertainty and emergent surprises that dominate the behavior of these systems. So in that sense, everything that we have learned really from our scientific education for last 200 years primarily go, falls into two domains. Either the system is deterministic or it is statistical. Complexity now demands that it's neither. It's neither deterministic nor statistics. It also claims that it is not chaos either. Chaos is, chaos is theoretically deterministic and predictable, although operationally may be impossible to predict. Now, a key differentiator then between complex systems and other systems is this idea of emergence. So emergence challenges the idea of determinism and the traditional notion of causality. 
because it suggests that the outcome of a complex system is theoretically and operationally unpredictable. In complex systems, large-scale behavior often emerge that cannot be traced back to individual elements of the system. Here we will use complexity science as a theoretical lens to understand, explain, and perhaps resolve some of these transboundary water problems. So what that essentially does really in the book is that what we are saying, complexity is a condition. It is not the cause. Emergence is the effect. And contingent resolution through adaptive learning is the approach will be needed to resolve many of these transboundary water problems. So in describing and identifying this coupled system, we are making a critical distinction here. And that has important implications how they should be approached by researchers, academics, as well as practitioners. So the way we diagnose and characterize a system shapes our response to that problem. If we see the system as simple, we expect that we can rely on experts or the marketplace to develop repeatable, replicable solution that treat root causes and adapt widely available and tested best practices. If we diagnose the system on the other hand as complicated, we seek diverse expertise to create locally tailored solutions that meet a required level of service. On the other hand, if we diagnose the system as complex, we recognize that expertise is not a substitute for the knowledge and understanding derived from inclusive, early, and ongoing stakeholder engagement with explicit recognition of the capacity and the constraint imposed by the context itself. Now, a misidentification of a system in either direction, that is simple as complex or complex as simple, can lead not only to the misallocation of time, resource, and talent, but also to outcomes that are harmful to the communities we're trying to serve. Then what we need really is to address these problems from an actionable outcome. For complex problems, the desired certainty of a clear-cut solution does not exist. So this is an assertion we are making because complex systems by definition is not predictable. Neither do we have a consensus on what action to take to address these problems effectively. So when we... Let me interrupt you right there, Shafiq. Um, you're saying that complexity does not equal difficulty, but it sure sounds like all these emergent qualities of complex systems are going to make it hard for lots of actors to participate in making decisions. So when you say complexity doesn't equal difficulty in the practical world of making decisions about rivers or water management on a basin scale, it sure sounds more difficult. It, it, it is difficult. No question. I think that's a very good point, Larry. So, so to think about really a complicated problem could be also very difficult to solve because we may not have the right resources, we may not have the right technology, we may not have the right context. For example, if a simple problem of supplying clean water to any place is not a really complex problem. It is a known problem. Now you go back to the slums in Bangladesh. It is extremely difficult 
but it does not make it complex because we know the complexity we know the actual technology we know how to do it what we may not have is maybe the resources to do it or the political will to do it so in that sense that's still difficult it is difficult it is difficult that's why i say it so it is not the level of difficulty that defines the complexity so level of difficulty has nothing to do with whether this problem is simple or complicated or complex. It is this inability to be able to predict, inability to see what is going to come. That is what makes it. If, if, it, if this is about the idea of emergence. If, that, that is correct. If a system is emergent, you, you're going to be surprised. You said uh, there will be unexpected results because the complexity inside the system causes interactions to happen that you can't model with great confidence. So that means that complex water management relationships amongst countries or groups or uh, relationships between the natural systems and the socio-political systems are emergent. If something is emergent and you have a problem with the direction it's going, is there a room to intervene since it's going to be unexpected and surprising? How can the users of systems or the managers of systems get together to take action if everything's kind of emergent organically because of all this complexity? Wonderful. So I, I don't know whether I want to divert a little bit. So you can think of really this COVID-19 for last six months then you would know really this is a complexity in action. In January 2nd, on January 2nd, we knew that there were about 40 cases of very strange lung infection going on in Wuhan. And China called WHO that there is something going on very strange. Should we have really acted at that time as an emergent phenomena? Was this an emergent phenomena to diagnose on January 2nd? It's very difficult. Although we knew that 40 cases are too many, it's not one or two, it's 40 concentrated cases. So that's a sign of emergence, but we could not detect it at the level. So we had to wait till almost like mid-March in the US to start acting. So that has essentially basically gives you a picture. When complex systems emerges, it will give you signs but those signs are not really as stable or as predictable compared to let's say the one that we see for simple or complicated systems so that's what the difficulty is so is that why to to move to a second question is that why you talk in the subtitle about contingent resolution because if if the complex systems natural and socioeconomic or socio-political keep evolving in ways that can't be fully modeled and expected, and yet you still want to take action, presumably at a certain moment, you do the best you can, you make the assumptions you can, and you resolve to deal with whatever the problematic situation is in a way that looks okay at that moment. Is that what contingent means? That is exactly correct. So essentially, contingent then would mean... so. Contingent meaning that we do not have a prescription that is a priori can be described. So even if I now go back to the same COVID example, let's say that COVID-25 comes in five years from now, and I see three 
totally different now type of uh, basically symptom the three heart infection happens in boston and these three we have not seen before now am i going to essentially have a lockdown for massachusetts really because i have three cases that is what the challenge would come in now if we basically can very quickly do the genome sequencing and find out that this is more dangerous than as a coronavirus we may do that that judgment now has to happen really based on the information they have at that time bringing in multiple experts from multiple groups bringing in lot of basically people who will be affected by it and make a decision at that time and that decision can you connect that to to water diplomacy that is um ethiopia says we're going to build a dam and it's the biggest dam you ever saw and we need it because we need the hydropower and we need this and we need that we need to control the flow of water we want a second growing season and the other countries downstream uh, sudan and, and egypt say uh, you can't build that dam over there that will disrupt the flow of the river and when you try to fill it we won't get our share of the water coming our way and they all try to model it but it's it it's emergent that is if they'd have to build it to see what it really does and yet they need to make some contingent resolution all right you can build it but only here and only in this way and you have to monitor this and or the contingent decision is until you show us these things you can't build it i mean can you relate the idea of contingent resolution to the water question okay let's let's do this for the nile so, so if you think about this really this positioning of the dams on the nile for ethiopia was done long time ago almost in 1960s by the us corps of engineers and nothing happened from 1960 to almost like the beginning of 2000 so why nothing happened because at that time there were a lot of things happening ethiopia became irrelevant Egypt became a friend of the US so we decided to not to pursue this but if you now go back to the history you will know that this uh, jard the location of jard was decided in 1959 but it was never built so what happened really so what happened really now we have seen lot of things happen arab spring happened egypt basically got into political trouble so now there was an opportunity created for ethiopia to exert that look we are not even in the part of the game when nile was shared really by the british really they only gave water to sudan and it and egypt ethiopia was not even considered not not even other 10 countries in the nile basin so only two countries got all the water because that is the way it was decided now when the time changed now you are in basically big problem because ethiopia decided that we will build a big dam and is bigger than the aswan dam and that creates problem for egypt now if you think about this really does it really create problem in the real sense or it is a problem that is created because we want to stick to our earlier agreements we are only talking about 59.5 billion cubic meter of water for egypt but if you look at the nile nine has nile has over 2000 billion cubic meter of actual water coming in as rainfall so we are not harvesting that rainfall very carefully we are fighting with this 84 billion cubic meter which was an average flow that creates the problem so what has to happen really in a contingent resolution case now egypt 
Ethiopia, Sudan may come together and decide that, look, I think we have been thinking about this 84 for quite some time now. Over these last, last 100 years, the population has quadrupled. 84 remains at the 1929 flow. That was an average flow. So with quadrupling of really population itself will create the pressure that is going to be unprecedented. Then we have issues of climate change. Then we have issues of really modern technologies. So this is a time now to rethink about this particular allocation problem. Is it really in 84 or is it that something that we can do right now that can create more water for us? So this is where I think that even the whole idea of water diplomacy comes in. We view water as a flexible resource. We'll say, no, maybe it's okay for Egypt, Ethiopia to build that dam and then they create cheaper amount of electricity that Egypt can buy. And in return, now Ethiopia can start producing a lot of food through their agriculture development and maybe sell that food at a lower price. Is that an option? So those are the type of things we need to think about really when we are talking about this contingent resolution. So if you think about even the Nile case now, I think it's a very good case. Nothing happened. Nothing happened really until this 2016 Declaration of Principles. So what did they do? If you go back to 1990, Nile Basin Initiative was created and we have created tremendous amount of scientific knowledge in terms of the hydrology, in terms of the economy, in terms of the power for the Nile. But nothing happened. Egypt decided even not to come to the table. But in 2016, when JARD was almost being built and started the progress. When you say JARD, I just want to make clear. Grand, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. That's right. Yeah, yeah, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. So, so that dam essentially prompted now both the all three countries, essentially Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan to come to the table and formally declare a declaration of principle. So this is what we get into this whole idea in the book that we are calling enabling condition. The enabling condition one is that there has to be explicit recognition of interdependencies. So with the de declaration of principle now, we are seeing there is an emergence of this enabling condition which did not exist in 60s, 70s, even in 90s. So that's where essentially this contingent resolution comes in. The reason it is contingent is that because when you have a system with interacting elements, you simply cannot predict really what the outcome will be. For example, when Egypt was not part of this Nile Basin Initiative, at that time they were out. So the interaction that happens to other 11 countries will be quite different when Egypt comes on board. So that makes it contingent, meaning that who are the acting partners or the variables or the processes that is being counted in the system dynamics. So in the system we have, basically we're saying there are two systems. We have a natural system, which is a rainfall, flood, evapotranspiration, and so on. And in the societal system, we have actors and institutions. Now, these two system interacts. Given what part of the element is important when the dynamics will be different. So bringing in, for example, Egypt creates a different dynamics than bringing in the issue of say climate change from a natural domain.
So if I bring in the issue of climate change, then the dynamics changes. If I bring in the issue of food security for Egypt, that brings in another dynamics. Depending on which one do I include them, because there are too many variables. That decision simply cannot be imposed a priori. That definition has to be done by the identification of the problem. What problem are we trying to solve? Is it really that I'm trying to fill the Grand Ethiopian Dam? If I do it over, say, five or 10 years, then it may not have much impact really on Egypt. On the other hand, if I do it in one year, Egypt will have no water because I have to bring all 59.5 billion cubic meter to fill the dam. But that doesn't have to be the case. We can do it over a period of time by doing some careful study and agreeing on really what will be the schedule. And we also do not know really what is going to happen next year in terms of the hydrology. Are we going to have more water or less water? So what this does really, this creates these contingencies. These contingencies, both natural as well as societal, unless we bring that explicitly in our conversation really, we will not have a solution because we have a template in our mind that things are predictable. If things are predictable at 84 billion cubic meter, then I can get an allocation problem very easily done. And I know very well next year it will be different. I get complexity and what it means in all these countries fighting over the water in a river or at least trying to pursue their interests given other countries have other interests. And so you've explained about the complexity and the emergence of what's going to happen and the fact that natural and and socioeconomic or sociopolitical systems are all involved. And I get the idea that any intervention you make is contingent. Any resolution, meaning an intervention you take at a certain moment in time, is contingent on a lot of things. And you better read them in the context that they're in. You can't use a standard list. But then you talk about, and you mentioned it briefly, enabling conditions. Now, now, what's being enabled? And are these, I mean, are there three or four things that always have to be enabled for contingent resolution to work with complex water systems? Or are you just saying after the fact, oh, that was enabling because that's what allowed them to get a contingent resolution? Uh, what is an enabling condition and can you know it before the results are clear? Yep, good, good point. I think this gives us our third question. So, so let me start with, again, very three broad question from philosophy to physical reality. So if I ask you that, does life cause death or does oxygen cause a fire or does rain cause floods? Now, these questions really from the life to death to rainfall to flood really appear to be very simple with causal connections. But are these really that simple? Rainfall may be a necessary condition for a flood, but it is neither a sufficient condition nor a causal factor to perfectly forecast a flood. If the rain comes after weeks of dry weather, soil can absorb considerable amount of water, limiting runoff and may not lead to flood. On the other hand, you may have three large rain events happening over a week may create a disastrous flood. So this is where this idea of causal versus enabling conditions comes into the picture. So what, what enabling means that, no, these are not prescription. What we are claiming that with any of these problems, when they're complex, there has to be certain conditions. Those need to be there. These are not causal. 
these are not basically causing certain outcome to happen but if they are not there then the situation are not really conducive to any of this discussion that we want to have so what do i mean so what is happening really if you just take it in a simple way what people would say that look to make it very broad and simplistic i can put many of the transboundary water problems into maybe four bins the first one maybe say that okay if we get the science right that would be your hydro management hydro technical type of intervention or market say hydro market or power and participation say hydropolitics we can successfully manage any transboundary water issues of course the people say no no look this does not happen really in vacuum they are all interlinked understood now the question is when you have a situation where i cannot even answer a simple question what causes floods so how can i essentially try to get a solution really to a problem of transboundary water management when i am trying to looking for causes the what caused this particular action to happen so now if we go back to celeste the grand ethiopian dam what caused really egypt ethiopia and sudan to come in 2016 and have this declaration of principles what i would argue and then we argue in the book also that there was an enabling condition that enabling condition was created by now how they have already shown it by explicit interactions of making that happen but how did that happen now you can go back to many things you can say that okay this happened because arab spring happened because egypt became weaker ethiopia started building the dam so many many causes i can attribute but those are basically very problematic to identify explicitly unless in retrospect but what did happen then what happened that we have seen now these three countries explicitly recognize that no we have to do something about it that is what we are calling enabling conditions in one of your question you had said can enabling condition be created they may not be so the question is i think it can be facilitated but what is important here is that are they present or absent the argument that we are making based on seven case studies across the globe and with several reflective pieces the argument we are making is that the absence or presence of this enabling condition is a key in understanding whether we will be able to do any intervention that will have any basically sustainability and resilience over time if i do not have these three conditions then no matter how hard we try we are not going to go very far so why do we say that that's very very clear i really appreciate that uh we're just about uh out of time would you say i mean we just mentioned in detail the nile uh now you've mentioned that there are a lot of other uh regions of the world that are covered in different contributions in the book uh, can send you say a little bit about it because some people listening would say well i'm not interested in africa oh i'm not interested in the nile uh what well, what are diplomacies covered in other ways in the book can you say more so maybe so let me give you two examples and i'll give you one basically very specific examples also from uh, from pakistan so first example i would think about really is the supply demand gap in the dry season in bangladesh or to providing water so so for example in bangladesh the ganges flow really is not a problem during the rainy season 
the difficulty comes really in the dry season. Dry season flow creates a serious problem between India and Bangladesh. Now, if you think about that is one problem. Now, how would that be resolved? That is now question is basically, can India keep all the water during the dry season? If they have to negotiate, what will they negotiate with? Another problem you can think of really is that if I want to provide water in the slums, either in Karachi or in Dhaka or in Mumbai, how would that happen really? Is it not that we do not have enough water? We do have enough water really in Dhaka to provide water to the slums. The reason it is not being done because these slums are illegally occupied. By providing water in those slums, government does not want to recognize that these are legal settlements. That's a very different problem. And similarly, really, so what we have done really to bring this idea of enabling conditions a little bit further, in a recent follow-up paper, we looked at the distribution of water of Indus within Pakistan. If you think about it, the Indus Treaty was signed between India and Pakistan in 1960. That allocated the water for the Indus between these two countries. Now, when water comes to Indus itself within Pakistan, now there is a problem because there is a serious problem of allocation within the provinces between Punjab and Sindh. Nothing happened for last 30 years till 1991. In 1991, something happened. So what happened really, Pakistan federal government decided that they will have a Water Apportionment Act to resolve interprovincial water conflicts within Pakistan. So what that did, really, that created an enabling condition to happen. Between 1960 and 1991, if you look at Pakistan, they had at least six commissions that I can think of that, that was created and tried to resolve the water conflicts within Pakistan, between provinces or four provinces in Pakistan. Nothing really happened. But in 1991, suddenly something happened. What happened? Then basically the government decided that we will have this 1991 Water Apportionment Act. That has given an emergent phenomenon and created this three enabling condition. That led to last 20 years, they are having very good time. So the, of course, there are some still conflicts, but these conflicts are now resolved in a very systematic way. So what did they do really is what we found through this is that 1991 accord not only created enabling condition, it also created some mutual gains. How did they do it? So now each of these four provinces think that they gained more than what they were getting before 1991. Not only through their technological advances, not only through their basically predictable water sharing protocols, also by sharing information among the provinces. Not only that, really, they also have a provision in the treaty, in this 1991 treaty, that how will they resolve the issues of, say, drought, issues of flood, or issues of climate change. So these were built in as the third enabling condition. As a result, this was a very good example that it doesn't have to be between countries. It can be also among provinces within the same country. So this gives us a little bit more credibility in terms of thinking about those enabling conditions rather than causal conditions. Thank you, Shafi. That's, um, you've explained complexity in this context and emergence and contingent resolution and enabling conditions uh, and with lots of examples. Um, on the book jacket, I think, it says uh, that you and your colleagues blend science, engineering, policy, politics, 
using complexity science, systems theory, uh, uh, pragma pragmatism and negotiation theory, principle pragmatism and negotiation theory. Uh, when someone just reads that and they may say, oh, how can one book do all of that? Uh, my sense is when they read all the chapters, they will see that in fact, that's exactly what the book does. Um, this is The book is uh, one book in the series, the largest series that you are responsible for. A title again of the book is, uh, a title of the, of the series is Science Diplomacy, Managing Food, Energy, and Water Sustainably. The title of the book, Complexity of Transboundary Water Conflicts. Uh, again, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Anthem will continue uh, to interview authors of other books in our uh, environment and sustainability initiative and in the four other series besides yours. Uh, but I'm delighted we could start with your book as the first one. Thank you very much, Larry. It has been a pleasure really to talk to you and then at least explain some of the things we are trying to do. Uh, for our readers, really, we will put our complexity hat and say that these are really a beginning so that you please go ahead and look at some of these issues that we have raised and send us your critique and look at some of the cases where these things do apply or not apply. So to make you an open challenge, let us find out places of transboundary water problems where some of these enabling conditions were not there, yet they have created some sustainable and resilient resolution. I have not found one yet, but I'm keeping it open. If you find one, please send us Thank one. Thank you for the challenge. Uh, Anthem's Enviro Experts Review comes out quarterly. Uh, we uh, do micro-reviews of books, uh, both from Anthem and other publishers uh, in the environment sustainability area. And we try to create a community of people interested in environment and sustainability. So Shafiq's challenge, we would invite you, if you want to take a stand in reaction to something you've heard today or in the that you read in the book, uh, we'll present your reaction in the Enviro Experts Review. Ask Shafiq and his colleagues to respond. Uh, please see Anthem Enviro Experts Review as the point of contact for a growing, emergent, community of uh, scholars interested in this broad set of issues under the heading of environment and sustainability. Uh, again, uh, thank you all for listening and uh, stay tuned for the next in the series of podcasts uh, presented by Anthem Press and its Anthem Enviro Experts Review.